Well, good morning. Hey, we're uh, making our way through the book of Acts. And so, as always, it's good to get together and go through the word with you. And uh, so I'll invite you to open your your Bible to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to start looking at verse 32. Last time, just to pick up where we left off, uh, Peter and John had been arrested for uh, for preaching about Christ after performing a, uh, an incredible miracle of, of a crippled man being able to stand up and walk and actually leap and and such and uh, and they used that as we will see uh, you know throughout the book of Acts that the miracle that takes place becomes the entrance for the gospel. It's not just about the miracle. The people saw the miracle and were amazed at it, but uh, it really was not uh, an opportunity for Peter and John to get credit or to try and um, you know take credit for that, but rather it became an opportunity to share the good news. Uh, and so, and, and, and their sharing of the gospel had to do with the conviction of sin and all of these things. Well, as this was going on, as they were preaching in the name of Jesus, the Sadducees had them arrested, brought them in. Uh, ultimately, they spend a night in the slammer, and then uh, the next day they're before the elders of Israel, uh, who basically uh, tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. And Peter famously responds, "Well, whether or not it's uh, you know we should obey God or man, you decide. But we can't help but speak about that which we've seen and heard." And so uh, it becomes this um, this sort of line in the sand kind of a thing that we would do well to learn from. Uh, nothing stops the furthering of the gospel, even if it comes at personal cost. And so um, there is, uh, after this point, they go back to the, 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 you know, the believers, the friends and all, and they share what happened. And rather than pray for protection and deliverance from persecution, instead, what they pray for is to be filled with the Holy Spirit again, to be, not again, again, but just to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered, essentially, to go out and be bold and to share the message. And so uh, they they see this as being part of their lives, and so they want to be equipped for it. And so they ask God to do that, and he answers in pretty dramatic fashion. He shakes the room uh, in which they're meeting and praying and seeking him. Uh, they are filled again with the Holy Spirit, and they, they are emboldened and, and ready to go. And so uh, that's how chapter uh, the, the section we read in chapter 4 ends in verse 31. And now from verse 32 through about, uh, you know, through chapter 6, deals with the body of Christ as it is learning to deal with its growth, with its practices, and and, uh, and in particular with one topic that comes to the fore very quickly in the passage we're about to move into. So let's go ahead and dive into verse 32. And uh, and we're going to go into chapter 5, but I'm just going to read until the, the rest of chapter 4 to start. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, and uh, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one uh, to any as had need. Uh, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It's a pretty awesome name that would be kind of fun to see come back in circulation. But Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, who was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we will go on into chapter 5 today, uh, time permitting. And uh, um, But let me go ahead and just speak to a few things that come out in this passage right here. In the first place, they were in fellowship in oneness of 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 body together in the body of Christ they were those that heart and soul were committed to one another and that love was not just simply a word it was not just spoken but it was put into practice 
as people considered those in need, took what they had, uh, sold it, gave the proceeds to the apostles so that they could distribute it where there was a need so that nobody went without. And as they said here at that point, nobody was needy, nobody was hungry, everybody was taken care of. It was such a beautiful example of the church working together, of the body of Christ working together. My apologies to my hyper-dispensational friends who are waiting for chapter 9 for me to start using the word church. I just a habit, and I know there's some discussion about that, but um, but um, 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 grace is important, right? So, matter of fact, uh, great grace came upon them all as they went through uh, their their lives together. Now, I should point out something that you know, uh, and this is not explicit in the text, but we do see this throughout the New Testament when there's discussions and debates over theology and things like this. Um, you know, in our day too, there are as well. There's a lot of things that um, that provide reasons why denominations may exist in the body of Christ. I don't use the word divisions necessarily because different denominations don't necessarily mean you're divided from the other members of the body of Christ, but it just simply means that there are there are aspects to your uh, your preferences and fellowship that uh, that that cause uh, certain groups of people to want to just flock together. As they worship together. Now, there are sometimes uh, significant doctrinal differences, but you know, if we're talking about lighter things like style of worship, or um, you know, um, you, you prefer a big church or you prefer a small church, you know, things that are not necessarily salvation issues, but they're just issues of preference. Uh, there are reasons for denominations in that. Again, there there are also significant doctrinal differences. Uh, there are churches that that center on certain doctrinal issues that become really kind of the focus of that church, and it becomes sort of the fountain from which a lot of their uh, ideas and, and beliefs come from. Um, not heretical or anything, but just a focus on a particular kind of a thing. Um, you know, uh, one church may adamantly believe the gifts are not on the scene today, and so they they like-mindedly come together and worship, and, and when it comes to those passages, they all sort of in agreement about it. Uh, others believe they are for today, and so they're more comfortable in a church that is, is open to the fact that they exist, not talking about the abuse of the gifts, but just the belief that they exist. You know, I'm just throwing ideas out here that, that can form reasons why churches may, um, you know, congregate in under different denominational titles. And I say all that to say this, that unity in the body of Christ doesn't have to mean uniformity. Now, that expression has been used in the past. I, I lifted that, to, and I've used it often. But the idea that you and I don't have to agree on every single point of theology in the peripheral things. On the essentials, of course we do. Uh, you, I mean, you're either a saint or you ain't based on your beliefs uh, about what the Scripture says about the person of Christ, the nature of God, how we're saved, you know, these kinds of things. Um, but, you know, on other issues, you know, uh, we've often said when we talk about eschatology, you might have a different view than I do in terms of the timing of the rapture or how some things may play out. That's okay. You know, until they happen, we're not going to know absolutely for sure. We just look to the scriptures and we form our, our sense of what the scripture says about these things. And as a result, I think we can fellowship together, even though we have some differences in some of those beliefs. Uh, I'm thankful that in my own fellowship, in our own church here in Franklin, we have people that have different views on some different things from what I teach, and yet we can fellowship together uh, and enjoy each other and, and, and just, you know, wait for the Lord to come together. And so uh, I think it's possible for the body to be that way. And so, um, again, you don't have to believe everything down to the, the nuanced, every single point to be in fellowship. Uh, in order to have your your hearts and souls knit together as the body of Christ. And to finish that thought, I would suggest that as we get closer to the return of Christ, as things uh, continue to uh, move in the direction that Jesus described, where it, uh, when, when the Son of Man comes, 
Will he find faith on the earth? The love of many will grow cold. There will be wars and rumors of wars. All these things going on. Uh, those don't paint a pretty picture. And so as those days come, I think as believers, you and I are going to need each other a lot more. We're going to realize you know, what really matters uh, in terms of being a member of the body of Christ and which things you know, we can sort of agree to disagree on. So I don't want to say unimportant, but to say that we can agree to disagree on some things. Again, essentials being essential. Uh, and again, we'll quote Augustine on this. And essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. And so, but they were of, of really of one heart and soul. And no one that had any of the things that belonged to him, he considered them to be his own. Let me speak to the next thing. Uh, many look at this passage into chapter 5. Uh, and other passages in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians, where they have, you know, what basically is like a love feast that Paul addresses, behavior in that. Um, you know, there is, uh, especially in a passage like this, there's sometimes the view that this is sort of um, demonstrating an element of of socialism or even communism and that kind of a thing. And I would say, and, and again, this isn't supposed to be an economics lesson per se, but when we see a passage like this, it's probably worth hashing this out just a little bit. And again, you may disagree, but... Um, but by definition, communism means all people own all things. Nobody owns anything. Uh, socialism is where uh, the government owns the factors of production and decides how resources are used. Uh, and so when we talk about what's happening here, neither is by definition the case. Neither, it's, it's neither communism nor socialism um, because in communism demands that nobody owns anything. Here it's voluntary. Socialism demands that the government uh, manages the factors of production. Here it is voluntary. And so there are elements here of the, the result that is often shot for in communism and socialism. But I would suggest that what is being done here is much higher than those forms of, of, uh, of taking care of, of a citizenry. Uh, and that's because these, these activities are happening out of hearts that are changed and love the Lord and therefore love people. And so they are willingly giving of their resources in order to help other people. And that is something that I think the church should recognize. This is something that by nature, by new nature, we have the capacity to do. Um, You know, we use this example. Um, You know, uh, what should a Christian think in regard to things like borders and, and all that kind of stuff? And 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 my my general answer to that is that governments have large kinds of problems in those areas economically that they have to deal with. And I understand why countries are somewhat guarded about their uh, who they give uh, resources to because they have their own citizens to take care of. And those are big questions and there's lots of angles to that. But let me interject in that, that even though that may be the case, as a believer, if somebody came to my door and needed something, if somebody you know, if, if somebody came from another country and snuck in and they showed up and they were starving uh, or they needed something to keep warm, I would do that as a believer because I'm a citizen of heaven first and my desire is for this person to know Jesus. And so I will personally do things, but I'm not coerced to do that in that scenario. I am choosing that and therefore I'm exercising the law of love. I'm not telling someone to be warm and well fed while not giving them a blanket and any food. I believe that we should do those things. But that's out of the the new nature, the altruistic desire we have to please God and to be like him as his hands and feet to others. But but the idea of, of of an authority coming down and telling you you have to, that is a different element that exists in communism. Well, socialism, really. Communism assumes that everybody will just play ball. But 
The church doesn't assume everybody will play ball and doesn't demand it of anybody. People willingly of their own chose to do that. And so there's a fundamental difference between communism and socialism, I'll put those sort of communism slash socialism, and what we're seeing here. And I'm not trying to get an argument about economics. I'm just simply saying that we have a higher motivation than that a governing authority is telling us we need to do something. And that is a distinction in the church and should be a visible distinction uh, as we uh, interact with society. Uh, And so back in verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, as we've mentioned along the way, uh, giving testimony of the resurrection. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross, but that he also rose again. We see this um, in, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, where Paul reminds them, declares to them the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose, and rose again according to the scripture. That is the gospel message. It includes those elements. And our sins are paid for as a result of that, uh, that finished work of Christ. But they give powerful testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. Um, God had bestowed his grace upon them, not only in terms of uh, the salvific sense, the idea that they're saved by uh, God's grace through faith, but also that daily walking in God's grace. That is something that we, um, that we look to him for regularly. Lord, give me the grace to make the right decision. Give me the grace and what I need to, to press on in the midst of hardship and such. God's grace carried them, much like Paul when he was buffeted by a messenger of Satan. And he prayed, cried out to the Lord, and Jesus responded and said to him, My grace is sufficient and my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so God's grace was upon them all. And there was, again, nobody in need because everybody brought what was theirs and gave it, uh, sold it uh, as they chose, again, voluntarily. There's nothing in here that says they were required to do this. And in the passage, we'll see that that is further emphasized. But they brought it to the disciples and they made sure that nobody uh, went without. And then all of a sudden, in verse 36, we're also now introduced to Barnabas who will play a prominent role as a missionary partner with Paul, who at one point will separate with Paul over John Mark and a dispute over him and, this, and, 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 and such. And so we'll learn about that in the days to come. But Barnabas is introduced to us here. Uh, he's somebody who will bring Paul to the disciples and, uh, and ultimately uh, bring them together, uh, whereas the disciples, apostles were afraid of him. But Barnabas brings him and, and ultimately brings them together. And so he plays a prominent role. Uh, he's actually called an apostle at one point. Um, so the word apostle, meaning one sent on a mission, uh, as it's typically used in the New Testament, um, uh, is applied to him as well. And so we also find out he's a Levite, which means he's of the priestly line. Uh, we don't know that he was a priest at any given time, uh, at any particular time in his life, but, um, but he was part of that family. And so we can expect that he was brought up with a strong knowledge of the word. Uh, it is likely that he was... Um, somebody who, at least as part of that tribe, was familiar with priestly kinds of things, again, whether or not he was one, but he was somebody who understood the idea of holiness and separateness and all of this thing, kind of thing when it came to uh, his relationship with God, which means for him to come to Christ was probably a big deal. Uh, it may not have come easy. We don't necessarily know his whole story. We just know that he comes into the picture at this point, but it'll be interesting one day to meet him in heaven and uh, uh, and, uh, and and just you know, learn about his experiences and such and be encouraged by him. After all, that's what his name means. So in chapter 5, we continue on this thought. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh Uh-oh, 
What do we call that? Starts with an H, hypocrisy. The idea is that they were trying to appear one way when in fact they were doing something else. Uh, And so um, uh, he laid only part of it at the apostles' feet, the implication being that he was implying that he was laying all of it down, that he was saying that he had sold it and here's what I made off of it, when in fact he had kept some back. He wanted to look a certain way, even though he was not uh, actually being that way. And so in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Okay, wow. Uh, imagine if that were happening today. If, if, uh, if any of us who committed some kind of an act of hypocrisy was struck down in the moment. Uh, churches would be, you know, a little smaller probably. But, um, but by the grace of God, thank, we're thankful that he doesn't necessarily do that that harshly. But we shouldn't miss the importance of the lesson there. Um, the fact is that hypocrisy is a serious deal. Uh, you know, there is, um, there is something innate within the changed life of the believer where if we are going to be more and more in the image of Christ, then in truth, we are going to be transparent. There's not going to be different versions of ourselves. We're not going to be one way on Sunday and another way on Monday. We're not going to say one thing but in our hearts be doing or thinking uh, or acting in, you know, some other way. Um, You know, again, by the grace of God, you know, he doesn't uh, respond in every case. Matter of fact, this is kind of a unique case. Um, We don't see him doing this all the time. But God does send a message of the importance of purity of heart, uh, lack of hypocrisy, genuineness, authenticity. Uh, And he makes a big case here early in the church's history because he is setting a tone. Uh, that this is important. Um, uh, again, I'll also mention too, in regard to the property, you know, they uh, uh, it was theirs to do with as they pleased. You know, as we said, this was this was given as a completely voluntary thing. Elsewhere, Paul would talk about uh, uh, having the church he was coming to visit to take up a collection and to do it before he got there, so there'd be no coercion. There'd be no sense that you know now that Paul's here, they're going to feel like they have to give. He wanted that to all be done before he got there so that nobody would feel pressure, and that he could just simply take that offering and bring it uh, where it was needed. And so, again, the idea that, um, you know, uh, of genuineness, of not putting on a face, is which essentially what hypocrisy speaks of, um, but rather being authentic and being real and even being transparent. Uh, This is something that is characteristic of the believer. When it's absent, it becomes an ugly thing uh, when we take on sort of that that air of hypocrisy. Um, and so uh, another thing that we don't want to skip over as we look at this passage, that uh, Ananias uh, and his wife Sapphira, in conspiring with him to be hypocritical in this area, um, they are lying in this to the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, And Peter equates that with lying to God. And we mentioned this when we went through our series on the Holy Spirit. But the the person of the Holy Spirit is exactly that, the person of the Holy Spirit. He is a third person of the Trinity, as he is often referred to, uh, but he is personal. He is not a force. He's not 
uh, just God's activity in some way, the Holy Spirit is personal. He is part of the triune nature of the deity. And so we recognize him this way. Peter recognized him this way. We see him spoken of not only in the New Testament after the Gospels, but even Jesus, when he describes the Holy Spirit's coming and activity, uh, there is a very personal element to that. Uh, He is distinct from Jesus, yet he is just like Jesus in many respects. Uh, His purpose and mission are somewhat different in the sense that his purpose is to bring people's attention to Jesus, uh, to, um, you know, uh, to to indwell believers as the seal of our guarantee, as Paul would say in Ephesians 1. Um, He has a lot of roles in the life of a believer, some of which we've begun to see in in our study in the book of Acts already. Um, But uh, uh, Peter here makes the point that in being hypocritical like this, He's not, Ananias is not just lying to people. He's not just trying to put one over on the people that seems more spiritual than he is. But rather, he is actually, more importantly, he is lying to God in that he has lied to the Holy Spirit. The response, again, is that great fear comes upon all those who heard it. When God is keeping the church holy and separate, uh, that got their attention, that God is going to great lengths to maintain the purity of the church at this stage, helping them to stay on their spiritual feet as they were. Uh, The young men arose, they wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. In other words, she lied like her husband did. And so Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And so, um, understandably, you know, there was uh, an understanding that God was dealing. Now, you know, in Hebrews, we see that whom the Lord loves, he chastens, right? And so he loves the church. And I would argue he even loved Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, We don't necessarily you know, we can't necessarily infer from this that they weren't believers. When Peter says, Satan filled your heart, I don't know if, uh, you know, it, it, it may be that Satan really just tried to get his foot into the church, and maybe Ananias and Sapphira weren't actually believers, uh, but were unbelievers who were just trying to appear a certain way, and God judged them. Or maybe they were believers and just had a, a total lapse right there, and, and God used them as an example of the importance of purity in the church. I don't know, and I don't mean to imply too much either way on that. But we do know that God was using this opportunity to help believers understand the importance of truth from the inside out, of genuineness and authenticity in our walk, of not being hypocritical, but in fact being pure in our testimony. Uh, and so we're going to go ahead and stop there uh, for today, but we'll pick it up uh, in uh, either next time or in a soon coming podcast. There's a few things I'm thinking about uh, sharing about in the upcoming days too. I'm kind of working through and praying about and such, but um, but I do hope that you are gleaning and growing through our study in the Book of Acts, um, and uh, and just taking from this the great riches of seeing that first century church. This is sort of a a window back in time, looking at the earliest believers, our earliest brothers and sisters in Christ, and how they lived out their faith, and that will continue to be what they cover uh, really here through uh, Acts chapter six until we get to chapter seven, when Stephen comes uh, becomes prominent leading up to the conversion of Paul later on in the following chapters. And so, um, as always, feel free to go ahead and leave comments if you like, or if you have questions about any of this stuff, you can do that in the comments section below this video. 
uh, if you're watching our YouTube channel or if you're watching on my personal website at parsonspad.com, you're also able to comment there as well. And uh, you can subscribe to our audio version of this podcast from there as well. And uh, if you'd like to email me, you can do that both from our church's website or from my personal website, once again, at parsonspad.com. Our church's website is calvarychapelfranklin.com. And if you're somewhere in the Franklin area or if you're driving through uh, Nashville and you want to pay us a visit, we'd love to have you out. Uh, If you live in the area and you're just looking for a Bible teaching church, of course, we'd invite you to come out and spend time with us as well and grow alongside of us. But from our website, you can uh, learn more about us. You can learn some of the things that are going on in the course of a week and all of that. So, um, So I invite you to do that. So, But God bless you and thanks for watching. And Father, we just want to come before you and thank you for your word. We thank you for the boldness and the power that you gave these earliest brothers and sisters of ours uh, in in that first century, in those earliest days uh, of of the church, of the gathering of believers. We just pray that, Father, we would seek that you would work through us in the same way, and that, Father, you'd work in us in the same way. Help us to recognize uh, the seriousness of things like hypocrisy or really any sin. You know, we understand that our sins were paid for at the cross, and we don't lose our salvation when we stumble and fall. But at the same time, it does grieve your heart. And maybe, uh, you know, without sounding presumptuous, you know, it's, it's one thing for sinners to sin because that's what we do as sinners. But when believers continue to casually sin, I have to believe that grieves your heart. And so help us to realize the seriousness of this. And, and uh, while we don't want to fall into legalism, we do want to respond to the grace you've shown us by living lives that bless you and reflect your grace and glory and ultimately bring you honor. So take hold of us. Uh, convict our hearts of those things that you want to bring to the surface and have us address and, and, and walk away from. Father, we thank you so much that you love us in spite of our failings and such. But Father, help us never to be casual with sin. We love you. We thank you and praise you. Ask you to fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and that we too would be bold in our testimony of the resurrection of Christ. Thank you, Father. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.